Energy in Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Lockton Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon and welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. This is Leslie Beyer and we're coming to you from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. It's great to be back um, with our third podcast in our Critical Minerals series. We're so honored today to have Dr. Michelle Foss with us. Welcome, Michelle. Hi. Glad to be here. Um, so Dr. Foss is the fellow in energy minerals and materials at the Baker Institute at Rice. She develops policies, conducts research, and helps build capacity on non-fuel mineral supply chains. She's got nearly 40 years of experience in senior positions in energy, environmental research, consulting, and investment banking. Earlier in her career, she also had exposure to mining and mined land reclamation. She has a BS from University of Louisiana at Lafayette, um, a master's from Colorado School of Mines and a PhD from the University of Houston. So we are just thrilled that you could be here, Dr. Foss, to kind of round out this series that we've been doing on critical minerals and the role of that in the context of energy transition. As you know, our listeners are mainly involved in the oil and gas industry. Um, We see everything happening right now um, in obviously supply chain issues. um, And I know that we're going to talk about that a lot, but this is your full-time gig and you have been focused on this for a long time. So I'm sure for you, you know, you see everyone saying, oh, I, I'm so interested in all this now. Like what's happening? How are we going to get all these batteries for all these EVs? Um, but you've been focused on these issues for quite some time. So could we just open and you could tell us a little bit about that, the background, and then maybe we can get into how you see critical minerals. So actually, I, I um, spent some years early in my career on mining and mining-related issues, including mine permitting and reclamation. We were living in Denver at the time. And um, so uh, working with Colorado operators, but I also did a bit with the lead zinc operators in Missouri and, and other things. And then took the fork in the road into oil and gas. And I actually spent the bulk of my career there. But while I was still at the University of Texas, I retired from UT in in 2018. I was the the chief economist at the Bureau of Economic Geology, which for the state of Texas, among other things, advises the the governor and the legislature on our non-fuel minerals resources. So we do, at the Bureau, we have historically, um, through its 100 plus year history, a focus on minerals and mining in Texas. And in 2015, I felt that it was time to start looking at that again, because we're in the midst of all of these conversations about things. Um, I felt like we needed to look at battery metals in particular uh, and the associated supply chains, and we happened to have the right kind of talent at the time to be able to do that. So we, we plunged in. 
Um, it got some notice, in, including at Rice, and um, Ken Medlock and I um, decided to plunge in and add non-fuel minerals into the Center for Energy Studies. So here we are, um, and I'm coming back to it after, oh, you know, that long hiatus from when I was a junior, <laughs> junior professional. And boy, the mining industry has changed. First of all, in the United States, we have a lot less of it than when I was young. When I was at Colorado School of Mines, my friends there, my colleagues there, actually could look at careers in mining and minerals processing in the United States and Canada, and not so much anymore. Um, we have outsourced the industry, outsourced the businesses. Um, we've done a very good job of that. And yet here we are now trying to figure out how to supply our, our basic materials needs as well as materials needs for everything that we can dream of that we want to try to accomplish, new technologies and all of that. And um, let me tell you, it's going to be a heavy lift. It's not something that is going to be easy to do. We know from, from all of our experience in the oil and gas industry, the public antipathy to oil and gas, boy, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, you go over to the mining and minerals processing side and, and the NIMBY attitudes are front and center. Everybody wants the stuff and nobody wants the impact right, in their Right, getting backyards. it out of the ground. In fact, they've gotten, we call it harvesting now. It's, mining companies now say, well, we don't mine, we harvest, right? Yeah, I don't know whether that's an attempt to try to change lingo. Of course, we say the same thing in the oil and gas business, too. That's true. <laughs> I mean, but that's all, that's what we're all doing is harvesting mm -hmm. resources from the earth for all the things that humans need, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what it is or where you are. We've got the same problem across the board, which is that the quality of the resources changes, right? I mean, we've done a very good job over the past 150 years or so of harvesting the best locations, it's amazing how humans are efficient that way. Um, and, and so just like oil and gas, where we're concerned about, you know, discovering big fields and being able to um, have fields that are, to use the word material in the sense of financially uh, sustainable, we've got the same problem um, on the mining side. And it's very pronounced. We have declining ore grades for all of the major metals and minerals. Um, and it makes it a challenge to launch new projects. Um, and uh, the projects are not in the most convenient places. So um, you've got those two things working against you as an investor every moment of every day. And, and it's hard to see how we're going to actually make all of this work. And you, you note how we're already having a hard time with what we need today, and then we have all these future goals. How do those two come together? We'll, we'll get to that. I remember when you spoke with our International Trade Committee on these issues, um, and you kind of pushed back a little bit on the term critical, of critical minerals. What's the best definition? Because every listener might not be fully familiar, like what constitutes rare earth minerals, critical minerals, marine minerals. Mm -hmm. So the problem with using the word critical is that it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, that term tends to get thrown around a lot when you talk about the strategic interests of countries like the United States or anyone else for that matter. What's of strategic interest to us? What do we consider critical? When, when uh, agencies like the U.S. Geological Survey or others, um, you know, look at criticality, a lot of times it's influenced by whether we have it 
Um, are we importing um, uh, beyond you know what we can produce locally, uh, domestically, sourced domestically? Um, is it rare? Um, there are, of course, minerals um, that, that and elements in the periodic table that are less common in the earth than others. But it's used politically a lot. Um, it gets bandied about by special interests, um, industries that, that want to make a point. Um, and, and my problem is that, to me, everything on the periodic table is critical. It's all hard to get. It's just a, a myth to think that, you know, some part of this over here is easy and some part of that is hard. It's not true. All of it is difficult to do. Um, everything has considerations. Everything has trade-offs. And my biggest, biggest, biggest problem is that we keep throwing around that word and we're only using it when we talk about non-fuel minerals. When I look at what the world uses in materials, the fastest growing commodity is plastics, plastics and rosins. It's in everything. It's in everything that we want to build. The blades of wind turbines. Um, you can't make solar PV without plexiglass. Um, we're going to end up with electric vehicles that by content are probably 60 to 70% plastic because it's going to be integrated in the design of batteries and other things as well as just all the stuff we're familiar with, wheels, um, windshield wipers, you know, your dashboards, <laughs> you know, your seat covers, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and people are just truly clueless about the importance of that material in our lives and how essential it is to everything. So why aren't hydrocarbons on the critical materials list, the critical minerals list? That's one of my biggest beefs in all of this. Um, we can't do anything without it. So on the one hand, we're, we're over here, we're worried about where we're going to get metals, for instance, and, and other things. And somehow are we just assuming that, you know, somebody else is going to produce the hydrocarbons that we're going to need forever? Um, why don't we want to source those domestically as well as, you know, being willing to uh, accept them as far as part of trade? I don't know. But th that's so it's an, it's there. We've got all these distortions that are happening around that word that really need to be um, straightened out. And we need thoughtful policies around that. Absolutely. And I know, too, you know, just as you say, there's no awareness around how much we need plastics. I know when I talk about even if we were to move to 100% renewable energy, which we never will, we need hydrocarbons for that. But literally you can't produce the wind and solar that you want to produce without it. I mean, that's what people are missing. The, right. The, a wind power project without blades is kind of useless. <laughs> So far, anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, we might come up with something else. Um, plexiglass is actually what makes PV work. I mean, that's been the enabling thing, the enabling material. And until people understand that, I think we're just kind of having, you know, useless conversation. The Energy Workforce and Technology Council is the global trade association for the energy services and technology sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. Representing more than 600 member companies and 600,000 jobs in the U.S., the Council is transforming energy by providing members with tools, information, and representation to boldly enable a low-carbon energy future, safely, profitably, and sustainably. Through education, best practices sharing, supporting innovation and advocacy, we are driving a smart energy transition and empowering the energy workforce of the future. 
it, I agree that they're useless and maybe there will be a, a come to Jesus moment at some point, you know, yeah, kind of like we're about to see <laughs> in the energy crunch. I mean, look at what's yes. happening right now. Look in at Europe. what's happening right now. So, so, so the problem of course, what people have always noticed is that um, we get price fluctuations in the base metals um, and those happen just because of demand. So, you know, when we were uh, blowing and growing, growing like crazy um, with house construction and other things before the crash in 2008, Copper prices were moving right along with it. So was steel. So were other things. Um, when you look at oil and gas and the demand for hydrocarbons for materials, anything that moves oil or gas or liquids in general is going to make polymers more expensive, right? So you can't have one thing without the other. Um, and all of these industries feed off of each other. We need metals to be able to execute in the oil and gas industry. Um, other, uh, you know, um, businesses, other industries, other technologies need the polymers, right? Um, and everything else, the oh, chemicals, the, the catalysts, and, yes. and all of that kind of stuff. So, so, I mean, you have, we're in a time when all of this is converging, which is why it's so easy to worry about inflation and other things, because we've, we've started to see that the prices of critical materials overall um, everything from oil as a, as a benchmark commodity to the major metals as a benchmark group to gross domestic product are moving along in tandem. And, and that really should give people pause. And of course, we're talking about energy. You need a washing machine, you're going to be competing for the same stuff that people are putting into energy technologies. You need um, triage in an emergency room, a resuscitator, a, um, a breathe, you know, a, 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 something to help you breathe, something to help you recover. Um, we've, we've seen a lot of that in the news. Well, you need all of this stuff for that. So we have competing uses for these materials and we can't think about energy in a silo. It just doesn't work. So when we sat down, you know, we kind of touched on this is it, it doesn't happen in a silo. We need what what we can use right now and we'll need more even for all this projected growth for everything, for everything that this energy, non-energy defense, non-defense. Right. So if an EV requires six times more mineral inputs than a conventional car and a wind plant requires nine times more mineral inputs than a gas-fired power plant, how, how are we ever going to get there? How does that happen? How, do, how will we achieve that? I think everybody is underestimating the impact of all of those multiples. Um, and, and we've been looking at it like everybody else. Um, by the way, um, the demand for plastics for electric vehicles, this is my own estimate, um, is roughly six times. So you the, the, the metals intensity of batteries, if you just look at nickel, for instance, that's about a 14x uh, multiplier, but 6x for plastics. So we've got all these competing demands um, going into these devices, and there are a lot of things that we actually don't know. Um, we act truly do not know whether we'll be better off with them. That's that's one of the, the biggest concerns that I have. Um, if you work really hard to get electric vehicles into the market, but you find out that they're so materials intense, they're energy intense from all the way from extraction of, of you know, the raw materials to processing to manufacturing to shipping and logistics to final assembly to the customer and then use, right? Um, we may find that they're 
they're so uh, consuming of, of materials and energy that we can't do it. We don't actually know that. It's hard to study this stuff. It's hard to look at things, um, you know, in a, in a complete way and think about whether um, all, they are going to provide all the benefits that we, that we hope for, um, which means really clear-eyed analysis before you ever get to the policy part, um, which is kind of a frustrating thing for us. I can imagine. And, and the policy part, too, is only exacerbated by the fact that you can't talk about any of this without the absolute... It becoming very emotional very fast. <laughs> yes, it becoming emotional. And without recognizing how much of it is controlled by China. You know, even if they're not controlling the resources themselves, it's the production of all of it. So how do we balance how much of these minerals we need along with the hegemonic role of China in all of this? How, how, do, we, how do we look at that given the very challenging position right now between the U.S. and China? By the way, when I think of China, I think of it as a hegemon both on the supply and demand side. Um, China is a major minerals producer, and they're much more aggressive about it than we are. Um, of course, because we've outsourced our mining industry, it had to land someplace. Um, and, and China is a major producer of, of a lot of, of minerals and materials that the world needs. Their own manufacturing, though, um, requires more than they can produce domestically, regardless of what it is. They have lithium, they have nickel, they have copper, they have iron, they have, you know, um, they can make aluminum. They've got, you know, the uh, bauxite um, to be able to make aluminum and so on, but they can't make enough um, to supply their own manufacturing. And China has become the factory to the world. Um, when we look at just the energy side, I mean, we know what China sells us in consumer products. I mean, it's, it's actually hard to buy American. You go out and try to buy American, whether it's a major appliance, a piece of furniture, clothing, whatever it is, it's pretty tough, right? Um, when it comes to our industrial base and our energy base, and we look at the things that we're trying to buy more of, um, China controls roughly 70% uh, of wind and solar components manufacturing. So the, the gearboxes, the, the, the photovoltaic cells themselves and so on, um, they control uh, almost 80 and in some, depending on uh, battery chemistry, um, more than 80% of global battery manufacturing capacity. So because they have emerged in this role, and for them it's a strategic imperative. So, so you know, this became clear, um, especially in the past five, six years, um, looking at their five-year plans, looking at public statements, what they were investing in, outbound investments and other things. Um, for, for, for their part, um, if you look at something like building an auto industry, with all of the value added associated with that, plus transportation needs inside a country like China, you're not going to go out and compete with the established automakers. You want them to come to you, obviously, but what you want to be able to do is, is maybe push the envelope so that you can dominate in another um, part of that arena, and that's what is going on. So for them, this is strategic. It's not just tactical, it's strategic. They want to be a major force in electrification of transport. They want to control the supply chains, control the intellectual property. It's very, very clear 
from everything that we can see that, that that's the intent. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It helps to enlarge the global pie, but it makes it difficult for everybody else. And as you know, I mean, I think everybody in the oil and gas business knows it's hard for American companies in particular to go overseas and engage in investment. Um, there are a lot of things that we can't do that industries from other countries with, with different governments will do and can do. Um, and the Chinese in particular have been very assertive. I've seen this up close and personal in, in both Africa and Asia and, and work in those places over the years. The Chinese are very assertive and very good negotiators, very good at positioning in ways that give them access to raw materials um, and control of supply chains in the countries where they, they are doing business. It's a very powerful model. That's very difficult for us to deal with. That's the landscape. We have to learn how to think about it and deal with it. And in those countries where they are invested and they're developing the minerals, a lot of them do not have regulatory frameworks set up. What what can kind of the global mining community do to try and create some frameworks there? Well, um, the, the global mining industry actually is doing a, a lot. Um, so is the global oil and gas industry. So let's say the global extractives industries overall have been dealing with this for a very long time. Um, everyone is trying to promote and encourage the use of best practices, what we consider state-of-the-art in, in building sound projects, ensuring safety, um, making sure that um, uh, governments have proper oversight of operators for uh, environmental protections, public protections, all of that sort of thing. Um, governments have to be willing to implement. They have to be willing to enforce. Um, there is a lot that's been done on paper in terms of, of um, regulatory, legal and regulatory frameworks. Um, the implementation and the, and the managerial oversight is, is really difficult, and that's the biggest thing that's lacking in a lot of, of places that are uh, commodities suppliers. Well, that's the environment in other countries. What, I mean, when we sat down, you talked about how we need thoughtful policies and Here. we need to understand the framework first, but what can we do in the U.S.? What, what needs to happen in a policy arena so that, you know, we don't get out too far ahead of ourselves, which is what I perceive is, is what's happening here. We can say, yeah, we want to get, you know, four miles down the road, but we don't even know how we're going to get 200 yards. We don't realize we don't have the capacity to get that far. My usual response is I, th I think we should slow things down <laughs> because we don't have the toolkit. We don't have consensus. That's, that's the, the worst part of this. Um, and, and we don't have really good processes for getting in towards that consensus when it comes to um, building infrastructure, building new capacity, siting, locating, you know, getting people on board. And, and in the meantime, all of the things that we are doing to try to accelerate are escalating costs, um, triggering inflation, um, and, and not really getting us to the to place where we need to be. So that's kind of my own wishful thinking. I, I think the first time that a governor of a state, a prominent state, or a prominent member of of Congress from a prominent district where people want things like they want to promote electric vehicles for whatever reason in their communities 
And that elected official will say, and we want mining and minerals processing. Come on down. That's when we know that things are <laughs> moving in a different direction. I'm not expecting that, however, um, because the countervailing forces are really powerful, really, really powerful. Now, Texas is a business-friendly state. The interesting thing in talking to people about Texas is that um, there are opportunities here, uh, mainly on the processing side. Um, we can host minerals processing. We used to do that. We could, we could host um, a restoration of smelting capacity, refining capacity uh, for some of the things that people need. We could do it responsibly. Um, we would accept those businesses, whereas in a lot of other places they'd be more difficult to locate. And in fact, a lot of people are looking at Texas as a, as a place to do that. That helps our industries because that gives our um, businesses, you know, opportunity to source domestically, including even inside Texas. It also helps U.S. supply chains. Um, and, and there's some serious, you know, looking going on. And, and that might actually get attention and might start triggering some positive reactions. But I think we have to be very honest that this is a, this is a, a long path that, that we're on. I, I hear that from you. I mean, th this is like trying and not to... not just us. I mean, add the U.S., all of Western Europe, um, uh, East Asia, where everyone is trying to do all of the same things, certain other countries. It's a, you know, it's it's not it's not going to be easy. And we're all competing against and each other. And we're all competing against for each the other same things. for the same things. While simultaneously wanting to hinder the the harvesting of all of these <laughs> elements. Yes. Um, so what kind of work are you doing with energy companies in this space? What opportunities do you see for them? How do you advise them, those that interact with the Baker Institute? So um, what we can see, and I actually was able to see this when I was still at the University of Texas, but we can really see this um, to a very large degree in, in, at Rice within the Baker Institute, within the Center for Energy Studies, our, our core corporate donors are from the traditional energy businesses. And one of the really interesting things has been to watch those folks move up the learning curve and get reacquainted. I mean, a lot of the large companies had mining subsidiaries. Um, it used to be the thing to do. A lot of it was coal, but not all of it. Um, and, and, you know, the, a lot of the problems are shared problems. Um, a lot of the issues are shared issues. Um, and, and the dawning, the awakening of both opportunities um, and, can, and do I have lithium that, that I can produce, you know, on a, in a profitable way as, as part of my other business streams? Um, uh, what are the risks? You know, how, do I, how am I going to deal with that? How do I take, you know, everything that I've, I've done internally and, and, and try to make use of that in order to assess and in a proper way, the due diligence of, of investing, you know, in a diversified way across materials. So it's interesting watching people sort of do the data collection and, and, and watch the, the awareness grow. And, of course, the obvious thing about awareness is to the extent that you're trying to get people to have reasonable expectations of timeframes, um, this is really important for that conversation as well. So a lot of the people that we interact are really trying to figure out how to message to both their governments as wherever they do business, as well as the publics on what these timeframes actually really look like and what really can be done. 
um, and all the things that we don't know, like, you know, what are the benefits really? Are we spinning our wheels chasing stuff that, you know, really isn't going to deliver the return um, to us that, that we're hoping for? Um, and so a lot of what I see people making use of as we interact with them and, and, and work on our, our research and everything else is that information collection, intelligence collection for dialogue, how, how to build the dialogue the right way. It's really hard and frustrating, but, you know, um, we, we, can, we can see them doing that. And then I guess the third point to just quickly make, of course, Rice is a major research university. We have a lot of stuff going on in our labs. Um, we've been getting a closer look at some of it, and it's really exciting. Um, ways of extracting um, minerals out of waste. Um, so things that could lead to new recycling businesses, new technologies associated with that, what we call urban mining. Um, ways of recycling plastic to, to be able to deal with that part. Of the of of the economy, the circular economy that everybody <laughs> wants to try to build, new materials for new things, semiconductors, batteries, um, fuel cells, all of that is going on, um, and and I and and we're really trying hard to bridge between our labs and the Baker Institute. That's a that's a very big focus for all of us right now to make sure that we're leveraging within Rice as, as strongly as we can. And I, I see this happening at a lot of universities where you've got active material science and engineering programs, and then, you know, the policy cluster, especially one like ours that where a lot of us are based in science and technology anyway, um, to be able to kind of build the right kind of conversation. We need more of that across the landscape. And it is exciting to identify those opportunities there for the existing companies that know how to deliver on this, right? It, this isn't... Well, but even startups. I mean, there's a lot of innovation going on. There are, you know, opportunities to create new companies, um, new businesses. I, I, I like saying that, that Houston in particular, uh, and I don't want to, you know, overstate the case for audiences that aren't from Houston or aren't from Texas... But um, one thing that we know in this town is molecules. I mean, this is what we do for a living. We know materials. We know molecules. That's a we great know, line. We know how to put these things together in ways that could that could lead to new applications, that could solve problems, that could maybe break some log jams, you know, uh, along the way. But but again, you need the time. These things, the life cycle on major investments, is twenty years. And, and so you have to have patience um, to be able to do this. Um, you have to go where it leads you, you know. And there's a lot of dialogue that's needed in that education. A lot of say. dialogue and a lot of education and a lot of public awareness. For sure. For sure. Well, I appreciate so much you coming on and, and lending your expertise in this. You know, one of those important stakeholder groups that needs that education is the foreign service officers that we train every year and you speak to them on these issues. And that's been extraordinary for them to understand this. That's an important group. It is. But I think even in your core audience, our core industry, our oil and gas producing companies, the service companies, all of the employees, managements of all of these organizations need to understand how important they are. And I, I think it's easy for people to sort of feel intimidated by the conversation these days, but they produce some of the most important stuff. They have to continue to produce it. 
it's it's actually going to grow. <laughs> I mean, there isn't a decent outlook out there in which you don't have expanding demand for oil and gas for quite a while before you're finally able to say, well, okay, maybe we really can substitute and do something else. There are things right now that we have no answers for. We have no replacements. We have no alternatives. Um, and, and so, you know, these industries are vital. The companies are vital. Um, and, and it's really important for people to be aware of everything that's going on around them, but understand how important they are to the bigger picture. That's a perfect message to end it on. Dr. Foss, thank you so much for rounding out this series on critical minerals and, and the roles, the, the exciting opportunities, and certainly the risks for the companies, um, certainly that we work with. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. Please rate and subscribe on your favorite platform. And we are signing out from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.